It is Thursday, August 18th here in Draft Shark Studios in Rochester, New York. My brother Carter's birthday, by the way. Welcome to today's Happy Hour Podcast. It's 5 p.m. here in the East. I'm your host, Matt Schauff. With me, as always, is Jared Smola. And joining us today is a guy who came on the pod last year to join us and actually predated both Jared and me at Draft Sharks. He's now a full-time analyst at Pro Football Focus. He is co-host of the Fantasy Football Hustle Podcast with Brian Drake. And he also has a pretty strong track record as a high stakes player. He is Dwayne McFarland. Dwayne, thanks very much for joining us today. No, man. Happy to be on. Yeah. Just keeping it all in the family. It's it's <laughs> it's interesting. I, I was telling you guys before we came on, like I was just thinking about this randomly. And my first article that I ever wrote to Draft Sharks just to try to get basically get them to let me write way back in the day. This is like 15, I don't know, this may have been like 17, 18 years ago. This is a long time ago. This tells you that I'm old. <laughs> It was about running back utilization. I didn't call it utilization at the time, but it was really about backs that would still go line carries. So Tommy Bardell was stealing touchdowns from Barry Sanders. And then you had Leroy Horde stealing touchdowns from Robert Smith of the Vikings. And that was the article that got me a, a gig with Draft Sharks. And then I ended up writing about IDP. So were you warning people to not to worry about those guys and their effects on the starters? Yeah, and just how it was becoming a bigger trend in the league that fantasy players needed to basically be watching for, right? Is that every down backs were becoming less and less, even then. Mm-hmm. Now when you look at it by – it looks like there was a ton of them back then, like when you look at it by today's standards. Um, but the, I think the evolution of the passing game has added a whole other layer, right? Back then you didn't have near as much passing, so it was like, oh, we have a short down and distance back, and then we have our early down back. And so now you've got your short down distance back. You've got your long down distance back. You've got, you know, your first and second down back. I mean, there's so many specialists. Like we have some teams trying to work four backs in, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, and then we have, and we have, you know, quarterbacks that run the ball. So it's just, it's, it's further diversified. I think it's actually an interesting topic, like really across all of fantasy, we're seeing it get spread out more across receivers too, right? Is, is really almost every team is running 11 personnel as their base formation now and you got teams like the Cardinals and you have teams like the Bills that are pushing further in the 10 personnel groupings. And it's just going to I think it's just something where we're going to continue to see, you know, it expand and we have less consolidation or funnel type offenses. So, yeah, I think you're starting to see why we had Dwayne on the show. He's super sharp for this type of usage stuff. Um, we want to talk about you know, what we saw in week one of the preseason. I, I just wanted to say, though, Dwayne, congrats on the, the PFF gig. So well deserving a long time coming. I'm I, I can't believe it. You know, it was it was that long before you you landed a full time gig in the industry. You know, I, I think you've been one of the best uh, for for a long time now. So, uh, congrats! And uh, I'm yeah, jealous because I know you have access now to you know some of these metrics and usage stuff that we don't have access to as the public. So, yeah, ho- hopefully, you give give away some of that on this show tonight. Yeah, man, I'm I'm super excited, honestly, about what all I can do now that I've got like all this time to focus on it. Because before, you know, I was working a full time you know, gig and plus, you know, just doing this, you know, when I could basically as a, you know, just because I loved it. Right. And I still do, but now I have the actual time plus the passion and all of the data. So it is, it's, it's really cool. In fact, I had a call yesterday with some of the guys uh, about different ways that I could get some additional data. I can show it to you, but then I don't have to kill you guys. So I can only talk about it. (laughs) It I would also also be, I would also be killed by them. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, there's man, there's so much cool stuff. Um, and honestly, I think I'm going to do as much of it as I can in the season, but obviously like 
next off season, like I'll really be able to dig in like deep and just start to understand what could be some of the other things I should really be looking at. I'm, I'm doing that on the fly as I'm writing right now and reaching out to different folks that have worked there for a while and getting ideas um, or trying to read. I've been, I read as much as I can from everybody else on the site. So I'll, I'll read certain things that will spark something in my head where I've got a specific idea I can go look at and say, Hey, is there a correlation? Is there not? And sometimes, you know, right away I find something. And so those kind of things do pop up, but I'm, I'm super excited about digging in deeper. And, and that is my goal is to, is to really try to bring those insights to the fantasy community and bring um, a new layer, hopefully. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to see if you're still super excited in like January after, you know, the, eight, the 18 week grind of this full-time fantasy thing. We'll, we'll have to talk again then. <laughs> yeah. I, I know that it's uh, I know that it's a grind, but the way I look at it is, you know, when you're doing something that you love doing, um, even though, you know, it's still, I, I totally get it. Like, I do think there can be times where you're still like, oh man, you just need a break. Um, cause I go pretty deep into this stuff. So most of my articles, it's not like something I pound out in like an mm-hmm. hour, you know, I mean, I've got to do, I do some research. I get that done the night before then the next morning I'll wake up and basically like put my outline together and then, you know, it'll take me two hours to write it. So, I mean, I'm putting sometimes, I mean, eight, 10 hours in an article, but you know, typically somewhere around three to five hours, you know, into every article I do. And then you do podcasts and then you got to get ready for the next day, that kind of thing. So it is a lot. I, I think the biggest killer for me personally is when I'm working on a long article like that and I find something and I feel like I need to look further into it to see if there's anything there. And then you spend an hour and a half on that only to find out that there was nothing there. And you, it's, you know, I try to tell myself I didn't waste an hour and a half because there could have been something there, but it sure feels like a waste when I'm finishing at two thirty in the morning instead of one, maybe. Well, and it's a really good point because eighty percent of the time there's not anything there. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, really, I, I mean, we want you know, you're always hopeful that there is, um, you know, and sometimes there will be nuggets. It's like you said, you learn something from it, and like I'll find different contexts that I may be able to use, but it's not something like I'm going to put in an article and like take it to the bank because I just don't see the correlation right to fantasy value. But usually there's something that you learn about football or hopefully, right? That's what I tell myself along the way through that journey, because man, I do the exact same thing. Um, I did it just the other night. I did it two ni- I did it last Thursday night um, and I did find some good stuff, but there was a couple things that I chased down additionally um, and I spent like an extra three hours on it. And it was kind of just what you just said. <laughs> I got through and I was like, well, this is really cool, but this is not really going to help me with my article. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's important to, make sure that you're not trying to see something that isn't there just because yeah. you put that work in and then also not using stuff that really doesn't tell you anything if you ultimately yeah. find that. So we brought Dwayne on. We look forward to reading that stuff from you, by the way. We brought you on here, though, to kind of put the first week of preseason into context. Anybody who follows Dwayne on Twitter, it's his name, by the way, as his Twitter handle. If you follow him on there, you know that his display name is Context Matters. So we're trying to look at what we just saw in week one of the preseason and put it into the proper context. Dwayne, before we get to specifics, you brought up 11 personnel and 10 personnel, just in case anybody who's watching or listening later doesn't know what those two things are. Can you just lay out what 11 and 10 personnel are? Yeah. And we may mention 12 as well. So just real quickly. So whenever you hear the word, you know, whenever you hear 10 personnel, essentially you've got four wide receivers on the field. Um, when you hear 11 personnel, um, you've got three wide receivers on the field. And when you hear 12, you've got two wide receivers and you've got two tight ends. So that that's the simplest way. We can go into what the number designations are, but just know that 
10 equals four. So 10, four, good buddy. You got the trucker, right? Then you, if you hear 11 equals three, I don't know. You guys will have to figure out like what the, what the mind map thing is for that. And then 12 equals two tight ends, two receivers. And usually when you're looking at those numbers, the one is how many running backs and the second number is how many tight ends, right? Yep. So we just had the first full slate of preseason games. Some teams played nobody, the Minnesota Vikings. Some teams played some people. I mean, there's stuff to glean from that. We're going to get into some risers and fallers, some guys that you feel better about or worse about coming out of that first week. And, you know, maybe some things that we don't know yet we need to watch. So, Dwayne, why don't you start us off with somebody who has risen at least in profile for you based on what happened in that first set of games? Yeah, I've got several. um, But, I mean, we could just start right at the top, like if we're thinking alphabetical, um, you know, with the Cardinals. I really loved what I saw from Rondell Moore and we didn't know we didn't, we still need another data point, right? We didn't have Deandre Hopkins in the game. Um, you didn't have AJ green in the game. Um, and obviously Deandre Hopkins is going to play a huge role in the offense. But what was really interesting to me was that, you know, they were the way they were using more, they were moving him around. They got him the ball um, as a ball carrier. They, the first play of the game, I believe was a screen pass, um, you know, two more, And the other thing that was really um, caught my attention was that whenever they went to a 12 personnel grouping, Rondell Moore stayed on the field. Now, Christian Kirk left the field, um, but it could have just been because he was done. So uh, Colt McCoy stayed in, but the offensive line left at the same time as, as Christian Kirk. So it may have just been like, hey, Kirk is actually higher in the pecking order and we're just pulling him off the field. You know, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But I just I still thought it was a good data point to see that they were willing to use him outside and try to do different things with him. Because right now, I really think he's probably, you know, we just want him to be the slot receiver. But if there's any kind of chance that he could rotate on the outside as well and just bump up, you know, a little bit right of of the number of routes he gets to run per game, that adds incremental value. And I think he's an explosive player. And you guys know what's happened to rookie draft stocks. In like the last like three weeks or month it's been insane like especially if you're like on an underdog you're doing a kind of best ball like it, they're just all through the receivers are all through the roof right they're all they're all crazy um so more is one that while he's been creeping up it's not nuts yet right um it's it's still behind elijah Moore, even though he's healthy and elijah has been banged up with a quad injury so this is one that I'm super excited about because I like drafting rookie receivers after round 10 and he gives me an option that I'm actually excited about I'm so happy. I was praying you brought up more because I've, I've been heavy on him basically since the NFL draft. I've been I've been trying to convince Matt to get on the bandwagon that there's still time. Um, yeah, I, I was I was excited to see how they use him. I, I was almost like, you know, Cliff, stop, like save some of this stuff for the regular season. You know, like he's showing everything. I'm sure he wants to put stuff on film that other teams have to think about. Um, but, you know, what I liked is that, you know, Moore played a couple snaps on the outside, but he was mostly in the slot. And Christian Kirk played all nine of his snaps on the outside. Yep. So that makes me think that. Because, I mean, we know Hopkins is mostly on the outside. A.J. Green's going to be mostly on the outside. So I think it might be Kirk and Green battling for that second outside spot and more just kind of locked in as the primary slot receiver. That, that was kind of, you know, maybe it's wishful thinking, but that was kind of my takeaway from it. That That's where my head went, too. And then thinking if he locks that down and if they're willing to play him outside some – you know, he might be able to push for 75, 80%, you know, routes run, right, per pass play. Um, so if he could get to that number – like we've seen some guys as wide receiver threes, you know, be okay in the 70 to 80% range. I mean, that would be above where LaVisca Chenault's going to be. And, you know, folks are wanting to draft him in the sixth or seventh round. So I think there's some potential value. 
Yeah, so Rondell Moore is an exciting player long-term, and certainly I think that week one gave some good things for him, and I think he's absolutely fine as a best ball value. My issue with him is for roster management, season-long leagues, I just don't see the path to the kind of target share that's going to let us start him on any type of regular basis. I mean, we've got DeAndre Hopkins as a target hog there. We've got A.J. Green they paid $6 million to, so he's probably going to be the second wideout in targets. And then if we've got Rondell Moore in the slot, I mean, we're probably looking at low A dot stuff and granted he's big run after the catch. I just, I think he's going to be the kind of guy that, that finishes the season with more fantasy points than you really got out of him in your lineup. That's my, that's my hesitation. I know it, it, it's not anti Rondell Moore. It's I'm not sure that he's actually going to wind up making a difference for my team this season. I think that's fair. I, the, the way I look at him, I'm a little more optimistic, but I, I think, what you're laying out there for people that's realistic and and it can be problematic the way i'm looking at it is i can't hardly get any rookie receivers because like they're they're like all pushed up and like to the fourth through eighth rounds and this is a guy that actually profiles similarly to some of the others that are being taken ahead of him and really to like lavisca chenault who i also think people are reaching on and he's not going to be worth as much as what people think he's going to be on the field probably just as much and the one thing i will say with more is I mean, A.J. Green, we weren't that excited about him last year. You know, mm-hmm. I, I tried to pump him up early in the season when he was getting the utilization. <laughs> and, you know, he was one of those examples. Well, you can give you can you can give some people all the utilization you want. It doesn't matter. You know, and so uh, to me, A.J. Green still got to prove something. Six million on one year deal is not that much, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. If Rondell Moore comes into camp or you know continues to play well in camp, I think there's a path for him to be the number two receiver on the team and what could be a really explosive offense. I, I do agree. It's not like you're not going to get something like where he's up in the 20% target share range, mm-hmm. because I mean, Hopkins is going to get his Hopkins is going to be between 25 and 30% as long as he's not hurt. So I think that's a really good point, but I think he could get, he could push to be in like the 17 to 18% range. I've got him at 16% right now in my projections and I have him above AJ green. And part of it is because I just don't see the point, right? And in, in grading AJ Green, I'm I'm a realistic person, but I have AJ at 13%. I've got Christian Kirk at 10, and I've got Ronald Moore at 17%. I've got Hopkins at 27%. I think you know one more exciting thing about Moore, and I kind of believed it from the get-go, and I I believe it more after that first preseason games. I think he could get 30 or 40 carries too. You know, I mean, he could be in that somewhere between Tyreek Hill and Robert Woods as far as rushing production goes. I know that that could add a lot of fantasy value. Think back to Percy Harvin and how we didn't think he could be anything in his rookie year, really in a run-heavy offense where they didn't even use 11 personnel that much. They had Sidney Rice, and he just kind of exploded out of nowhere. And I'm not saying Rondell Moore is going to do that, but I think he could have some of those elements to his game. He's not as rugged of a player, as tough of a player as like Percy Harvin was, but he does have that run for the catch ability. Yeah, Jared's uh, pumping all the heat into his Rondale Moore hot air, hot air balloon. So I kind of feel like I need to make sure <laughs> to let it out a little bit. I, I need to make sure to put some cold air in it so we're not flying too high and burning anybody here. Well, we um, don't want ADPs going, you know, much higher anyway. So I'm right. good with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's move on so we don't push Rondale Moore up yeah. out of draftable range. Who is the next riser for you? I've got several. Um, as far as some of the biggest risers, obviously, I mean, if we want to talk about another rookie receiver. Um, and I don't want to necessarily say he's a big riser for me because he was already, he just shot up like seven or eight rounds, you know, in the last couple of weeks and that's Terrace Marshall, but he looked good. I mean, the quarterback play was even better. People don't mention anything about, you know, Walker's play and how basically Marshall just kind of got lost in the middle of his own coverage and his guy lost track of him. Um, but still 
you know, he was on the field for 73% of the team's passing plays. Um, you did not have DJ Moore um, in the game. You also did not have uh, Robbie Anderson in the game, but he did get used um, in the slot for 12 of 21 snaps, which is where he'll probably be used. I have heard a lot of folks though on Twitter, you know, and just in other social media spaces saying, Oh, he's going to completely take over Curtis Samuel's role. And I'm like, he's not going to line up in the backfield. Like that's not this guy's game. Like he's going to play the slot like Curtis Samuel did. What I'm interested to see um, is how does the offense potentially evolve with him playing the slot versus, versus Curtis Samuel, because they've been using him a lot, like to try to stretch the field in training camp. They use him that way some in this game again. And it makes me wonder, could DJ Moore really be more the intermediate receiving option that we thought he could be and more underneath Robbie, Robbie Anderson could probably be similar, but if they're using Terrace Marshall to stretch the field instead of last year, Curtis Samuel was working everything underneath. And so they could really use the slot position differently than what they did last season. So for me, this is a little bit exciting for DJ Moore as well, because he's still a young player. I know we easily compare him to Amari Cooper because it's like Amari Cooper is the guy that where every time you look up, you're like, wow, he's still only 23 years old. And he's, he, we keep waiting for him to like have this blow up year and he's been good, right? He just never got to great status. And I think that's kind of where people are putting DJ Moore now. It's kind of like, um, you know, dirty dancing. Nobody puts baby in the corner. Can't put DJ Moore in the corner. Um, you guys are like, what the hell is dirty dancing anyway? And if you're not, your audience definitely is. So I'm sorry about that. But um, so it makes me more excited really about DJ Moore, to be honestly, because honestly, because I'd like to see him be able to use like on all sorts of routes last year, they were really using him more as a deep threat. And so I think there's some potential there. Um, but I do like Terrace Marshall. Um, the problem is, is if we like Terrace Marshall and we like, um, you know, DJ Moore, and then we also like Robbie Anderson, like, why are we not drafting Sam Darnold? Like ever? <laughs> That's the biggest concern that makes me feel like, ah, you know, I don't I don't I'm not going to draft. I'm not going to get too high on Marshall. Um, he is my most owned Panther receiver just because he had been the cheapest, you know, at a really mm -hmm. good price up until now. But I don't, I don't know what y'all's thoughts are on Marshall and kind of the hype trains getting pretty nuts. Yeah. I mean, he, he was an exciting prospect and that debut was obviously exciting. Um, I like that he played inside and outside. Like you said, it's, it's an exciting wide receiver court. You know, I, I have a ton of Robbie Anderson and, you know, Marshall's starting to sort of get me worried about Robbie Anderson. Um, but you know, Carolina produced, I, I believe it was three top 36 PPR wide receivers last year, right now. I mean, like, yeah, now, Dwayne, like you said, um, Samuel's rushing had a lot to do with that, and Marshall's not going to get that. But Marshall could score more touchdowns than Samuel did. Marshall is going to have a higher ADOT and probably more yards per catch than Samuel did. So, And, and by the way, you know they all did that, and Teddy Bridgewater was still you know outside the top 15 quarterbacks in fantasy points. So like, it, it's possible for those three wide receivers to all you know hit at ADP and you know Sam Darnold not really be a thing still. Imagine yeah, if they just true. turned Terrace Marshall into like Cordero Patterson, by the way, and did give him those carries. <laughs> where, do, where do you guys have Marshall like what are you thinking like and you may not have it right in front of you but kind of projection wise yeah, yeah. he's a guy that like projections comes in low like you know we have him at wide receiver 77 have him for uh 42 catches 590 yards and five touchdowns but I mean you know when, when you get into that range of the rankings you're just looking for, for upside. upside he definitely yeah. has it yeah. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind when you're talking about those three wide receivers scoring for the Panthers last year is that Christian McCaffrey was out for 13 exactly. games. And I mean, Mike Davis got a bunch of targets, but I don't think he got Christian yeah. McCaffrey level targets. So that helped Curtis Samuel climb up. I, I, I like Terrace Marshall, the player as well. I agree with what you said a, a minute ago, though, Dwayne, to like to like Terrace Marshall a lot, you have to decide who you dislike or you have to say that Sam Darnold is a super value. And I think... Among all the options here, 
Terrace Marshall is the one that I want to keep down in Rondale Moore range and I'll take some and see what happens. And, you know, then there's, there's the handcuff upside if, if Robbie Anderson or DJ Moore goes down, but it's kind of tough to see that path to regular usage with both those guys. Cause I do like Robbie Anderson. I think he's got more downfield stuff than what they let him do last year. Sure. DJ Moore. And like you said, if they balance out his usage, there's upside there. So you know, it, you can like all of them as long as you don't let it get out of control and and be unrealistic with where you're drafting them. It's kind of interesting, though. We really do have, like, I don't know, there's a handful of offenses that have changed quite a bit since last year. And one of them could easily all of a sudden blow up, right, and just be huge. I think, you know, another one is the Dolphins. Like, when you we'll, we'll get to them in a minute. But when you look at what they've added with Waddle and with Fuller, you already had Parker, you got Jacecki. Um, I mean, you have plenty of you have plenty of passing options, you know, to go to. And then, you know, you add Marshall to this squad. You had Rondell Moore, which obviously, you know, we're already pretty high on the Cardinals offense. But there's a lot of room for these different offenses to take some pretty big steps forward, given all the changes that happen. I wouldn't be surprised if at the end of the year we're coming back going, wow, we should have been higher on offense X. They're not all going to hit, but one of them could definitely hit. And we could all be thinking, wow, I wish I owned more of those players. Oh, yeah. And, and the nice thing about the Panthers and uh, Dolphins is they're not priced up like the Bengals are. You know, everyone, exactly. everyone's excited about the Bengals. But, you know, Carolina or Miami could definitely be that offense that, you know, does what everyone thinks the Bengals are going to do. Yeah, I'm totally with you. That That's kind of the way I've been approaching them, to be honest. Like, I've got my Bengals exposure, but I'm not, like, nuts with it like some people are. Um, and I love all those players. I love T Higgins. I love Jamar Chase. I love Tyler Boyd. Um, I, if anybody I have the most exposure to is Joe Mixon, um, which is funny. That's the guy that even though it goes higher than those, that's the guy that's probably off on ADP. I would say all the others are probably slightly above where they should be in ADP. You're, you're making big bets on upside with all of them. So who's the dolphin that we're going to get into next? Or is it the the offense on whole? Uh, for me, it was really the offense on whole. And just, I, I think, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I love Sigmund Bloom. And like the, I think the analogy that he uses is perfect, but it's when you hear that steady, consistent drumbeat, like throughout the off season and you're seeing like these themes and they repeat themselves over and over. So early in the off season, we heard, you know, they were going to change the offense. Everything was going to get more vertical. Then they sign Will Fuller. Then they draft Jalen Waddle. Then we get to OTAs and minicamp and everything is about, hey, Tua, make mistakes. It's not a big deal. Push the ball down the field. We don't want you to check it down. We need to be um, able to you know, really push the, ver- ver- the vertical boundaries of the field and create space underneath for other playmakers, whether that's Waddle or whoever else. And now we saw it in a game, even though he didn't have all of his weapons. Um, now, some of it, you know, was really to the tight end, to Siki. Um, Waddle was out there plenty, which was exciting. They just weren't able to create anything. And Waddle struggled a little bit with press coverage, going back and looking at it and then looking at the data with PFF. So he's a young receiver. He's going to work through his growing pains. But overall, what I like is really Tua. Tua is a guy that I had already started to warm up to over the last about six weeks. Um, so slowly adding more and more exposure. But I'm pretty much now, I moved him up this past week. I just dropped an article yesterday on quarterback strategy and Tua is at the very, he's at the end of it. Like basically last stop for huge upside, I think is Tua. Once, you know, Trey Lance is gone. Once Justin Fields, you know, is gone. If Joe Burrow is already gone, which he will be right. Because they all go earlier. Tua is the guy going around to two rounds after them that I think we could look up and be like, wow, why didn't we think he could do that? Like he was an early draft pick. They put all mm-hmm. these people around him. We heard the steady drum beat in the off season and we just continue to ignore it. Um, and so he's a guy that I'm willing to be w- overweight on just because he's cheap. 
you know, mainly, especially in redraft where I can just cut him and move on. Mm-hmm. Um, in best ball, I have to try to be a little bit more balanced, but typically you're getting him as your, you know, at worst, you're getting him as your second quarterback at best, you know, he's often your third quarterback. Um, so I'm, I'm down with Tua. I'm down with Waddle at his ADP. I should probably get more fuller exposure. I just haven't yet because typically when he goes, Waddle's still there. And so it's like, I didn't have something just driving me to fuller. Um, but I need to get more exposure from him because we know that, you know, if he's with a quarterback that can get him the ball, we've seen what Will Ford can do. Yeah, Fuller's been out for like, th- for like three weeks now too, but I, I think it's a foot injury. Yeah. So that, I, I, wait, yeah. Again, I'm, I'm with you on Miami and I'm with you on Tua. Um, you know, my concerns are, you know, really all those wide receivers have durability issues. Fuller, you know, Waddle had his issues. Parker has had plenty of issues. And, and then the offensive line is still a concern for me. And I, I was, I was, you know, following the beat writers on uh, Twitter today that their practice with, I, I think it was it's the Bears. Yeah. yeah. The, the old line was getting demolished. Um, so that, that's still an issue for me, but you know, two is cheap enough. Um, I've been taking a lot of him. Then yeah, Waddle, it was nice to see, you know, they used him outside and in the slot. I'm not sure if you have the snap numbers, but I think it was pretty uh, even, you know, as far as outside snaps and in the slot. So that, that was good to see. Yeah, he did get looks inside and out. Originally, like in the beginning of the game, he started out on the inside. But yeah, they moved him all over, and he was out there for pretty much all of the snaps with the starting offense. I want—I don't have it right in front of me, but I want to say it was 100%. I've forced my, myself to get a couple of shares of Waddle or Fuller here or there, but it's really tough for me to be on either of those guys more than just kind of that cursory level with Devontae Parker going 20 picks after them in, in positional ADP. Mm-hmm. Um so I guess there's that. And then also on the quarterback front, do you think that um, Daniel Jones is not in that same territory with Tua in terms of late QB upside? I mean, I don't. I would, I would say the percentages, I don't see them the same way. Like Tua, I'm still hopeful. I haven't seen enough kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Daniel don't. Jones, it's like I've got a much larger sample size. Um, mm-hmm. And what my eyes tell me and then what the data tells me on several levels is that this is probably not good. And then, and it's a drum beat that's continued, right? He and Galladay have struggled and, you know, Galladay's battled injuries. They have not been able to get in sync. You know, he's got plenty of weapons to your point. You know, I'm guessing that's where you're going. I mean, you, you've got Evan Ingram, um, you've got Sterling Shepard, you've got Kenny Galladay, Darius Slayton can stretch the field. Kadarius Tony sounds like a train wreck. Like the guy just like has problem after problem after problem after problem. He sounds like Antonio Brown before Antonio Brown was ever good. Um, you know, so I, I don't know what he's going to be able to bring to the table. And then you have a guy like Barkley that can get, you know, work out of the backfield. So I would say all of the weapons are there. Um, and I do have some exposure to Daniel Jones as my third quarterback in best ball. Um, it's not, it's not really high. Um, but I, I think you could make the same argument to your, you know, that there are improved offensive weapons and anything could happen from that standpoint. Kadarius Tony sounds kind of like Antonio Callaway too. And I think we're getting oh, to a point yeah. where you just have to like ignore the speedy Florida receiver for a while until they prove <laughs> otherwise. He fell to me in the fourth round of a dynasty league this last weekend. It's an IDP <laughs> dynasty league. And I was finally like, I was like, okay, I'm going to take him. Like I'm going to put him on my taxi squad. Cause he probably ain't ever going to play. So I can keep him for free <laughs> until maybe he gets his head straightened up. Fine fantasy gods. I get the message. Daniel Jones and the whole Giants offense. Like I I started draft season thinking these are all cheap pieces Mm -hmm. and there's really nothing but upside versus what they did last year. But then they get to camp and it's like every single practice report on the Giants offense is like the yeesh emoji with the teeth gritted. And there's just there's nothing at all to get excited about. The, The most exciting thing is that their running back can still walk. <laughs> that is the most exciting thing. I mean, I do think Galladay is getting depressed 
in value to the point now where it's like, I know he's a good player, right? Mm-hmm. I, I've never thought Galladay was an elite player. Like some people, you know, you know how some people are. They're like, oh, he's big and he's strong. And I'm like, have you watched Galladay? Like, he's good. He's not a great player. Like people were trying to compare him to Stefan Diggs and stuff like that. I'm like, this is not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this guy can't get open on like every kind of route. He's more like he's got four or five routes he's really good at. You know, he's good with the ball in his hands after, you know, the catch. And, you know, he can make contested catches, but, you know, he's not like a great route runner or anything that can win at every level of the field, um, but he's a good player. And so anytime a player gets that's good, gets depressed to a certain point, I mean, I start buying again, mm-hmm. as long as I don't think it's something that lasts all season. And I don't, that doesn't sound like that's the case with Galladay. I know um, I think it's fresh in our minds because last year, you know, was a lost season, you know, for him. But at this point, like I'm willing to add some shares of Galladay. I, I wasn't drafting him whenever he was going often in the fourth round. I mean, I was in a draft the other night where I want to say I got him. I mean, like this, almost the, like the end of the sixth. And at that point, I was just like, okay, like I mean, I'm not going to let him go past that. And it was a 12 team league. I think those are important things to do in your fantasy drafting. Is not just be off of a guy no matter where he goes and also not to chase a guy no matter where he goes. And those are two difficult things to do because especially if you're doing this and you're digging into players and you get favorites and then you talk up your favorites, you're going to be excited or the opposite about them. But it's at some point you just have to disassociate and be like, well, this is where the value is. I'm going to take some. So I have, you care if I can talk about that just a minute? That's a great topic. Like, so I'm, I'm totally with you. I think where it's good to be on a certain group of players and it can be really great for you is if you're getting them later in drafts, right? And when I say later in drafts, round seven and on. Mm-hmm. Early in drafts, rounds one through six, you need to be more open, in my opinion. You know, and a lot of the players, and, and every year the cutoff for where that happens is a little bit different based on the pool of players we're dealing with and, and different factors. But I mean, that's typically my rule of thumb, you know, is if I'm in a 12 team league, so. Um, you know, six rounds, I'm looking at 72 picks and in those 72 picks, I need to be open. And when someone lets a player fall around past value and it's because of something I don't think is a long-term problem, it's especially if it's just a new cycle, like new, if you're drafting multiple teams and you're not buying the, up, the, the dips of different new cycles, you really shouldn't even be drafting early. So if you were drafting six weeks ago, and you knew you were going to draft through the summer and you weren't drafting Aaron Jones and Devontae Adams, then really you shouldn't have even been drafting in my opinion, because that's really, those are the types of things you're trying to take advantage of. Mm-hmm. You may have stayed off of Houston Texans because that's a very different thing with Deshaun mm-hmm. Watson. He wants off the team and he's got 22 allegations. I'm not a lawyer, not trying to go there, but that's different than Aaron Rodgers, who we were pretty sure was going to play. He was just trying to basically negotiate, right? Mm-hmm. He was trying to create leverage and he was, you know, we knew the Packers could come after him for like 40 million bucks if they wanted, if he didn't play, like he's not going to do that. Mm-hmm. So I say buy the news cycles and buy the dips. Don't buy, don't buy the peaks though. Jonathan Taylor shot up boards to what? Like got up to like pick five for a while. And I was mm-hmm. like out done, <laughs> you know, love him, but I'm not drafting him at pick five, but now look, Oh, Carson Wentz is hurt. He's going to be back. Quentin Nelson is hurt. He's going to be back. And now I can get Jonathan Taylor in the mid second. Yes. Yes, please. Now I want to get all the Jonathan Taylor that I can because I didn't get exposure in round one. And oh, by the way, now I'm getting to pair him with Saquon Barkley, you know, at the turn, Um, you know, so there's, those are the kind of things that I try to really, you know, talk to people about. Now I I know it's tougher if like you're going to draft one league. I get Mm -hmm. it at that point. Like 
you're, you've got your one home league means everything to you. And, you know, it's really a lot of it is, you know, Brad, you're, you're playing for money, but it's like you just want to beat your buddies and mm-hmm. you want to do it with your guys. In that case, like I get it. I'm I would be more likely to probably reach and pass certain players and that kind of deal. I don't know what I don't know if you guys have ever seen the research. It'd be interesting. Like how many fantasy leagues does the average person play in now? I'm guessing it's over one at this point because of best ball alone mm-hmm. because you don't have to manage it all season. So um, I, I play several leagues, so I try to play it more like um you know, really I would, you know, the stock market, I want to be diversified, but then later, you know, there are certain stocks like that I'm going to, you know, bet certain amounts on because, you know, I'm trying to hit the big upside. It's the same thing, you know, with fantasy. And I'll be honest, like my years I've done the best where I've done really good in national contests has been when I've been, when I've been correct about those players from round seven and on. And usually I have a pool of about 10 of them that I really feel great about. And I have them this year. The problem is like people are getting so aggressive, they're getting pushed way up boards. And so I'm honestly Mm -hmm. trying to figure out like strategy wise, like how do I adapt to like this new hyper aggressive environment? It's almost like poker 12 or 13 years ago when you could just go online and make money really easy. And then this whole new wave of player came in that they were all hyper aggressive. So then I had to learn how to play against lag. So loose and aggressive players, right. They would call everything. And so I had to adjust my style and beating a lag player was a lot harder than beating, you know, just a tight player because um, I couldn't just scare them off of pots. I actually had to come up with like other ways to win. So I don't know what y'all's thoughts are on that. Um, sorry, kind of went off on a tangent there, but I, I feel like it's something that matters. And it's probably, you know, there's a lot of good content. Edges are getting erased every day in this industry. And so if you want to, you know, not just put out content, but play well in these contests, which I do want to do um, because mm-hmm. I love to compete. Like, I feel like we've constantly got to be adapting. So I didn't know if you guys have any thoughts on that or how you're approaching that. Well, yeah, that's just like the new like wave of fancy. Like we didn't talk about portfolios and exposures, like even like three, four years ago. But I think, you know, with the, with the you know, arrival of these best ball contests, it's sort of become a thing. But you know, I, the other thing too is I, drafts I've been in now the past couple of days, like the room is changing. The competition changing. We're getting, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if casuals is the right word, but a, a different group of people are coming into these drafts now. So I I've seen like ADPs changing and drafts just kind of unfolding differently. So I think, you know, that's important to keep in mind too. Like drafts now don't look like, you know, drafts you were doing in May. What about the hyper aggressiveness? And so it is changing now, but ADPs have been pushed, right? So if people are drafting off of ADP still to some extent, you know, you got to deal with it. Are you making any adjustments to your strategy? I mean, I maybe to a fault. I still treat it. Um, you sound like you're like, screw that. I'm not taking that guy. That's too damn high. <laughs> I mean, it's maybe to a fault that I still treat it uh, more like on a draft by draft basis. I know that we're supposed to be building portfolios and I, I'm not a max out this contest player. So I do treat it a little bit more draft to draft. I, it, it, for me, it's really just practicing flexibility and adaptability and, and knowing in general what I can expect from a certain spot. But looking for the variations in a particular draft because they're not all going to follow ADP. ADP is going to change from one month to the next week to week, even depending on the format you're playing on. So I, I don't know, I guess it's, it's tough to, to state overarching principles here. Cause I think it differs a lot based on where I'm drafting, you know, DraftKings, underdog FFPC, they're all going to perform pretty differently. So I really just, I try to stay flexible. And if I see, running backs getting pushed to that two, three turn. Whereas uh, not long ago it was receivers. We were looking at, you know, taking the running backs instead of, I don't know, following where the trend is going. So 
maybe that's not that clear an answer, but it's, it's really for me just about flexibility, adaptability. It's funny you say that I wrote um, an article yesterday on quarterbacks and I wrote one today on running backs. So I have a series this week and because of all the different strategies, the article is really kind of back to the roots of being able to be adaptable because you don't know what the room is going to turn out to be. You could be in there with five zero RB drafters. You could be in there with, you know, everybody trying to go anchor RB. You could be in there with everyone trying to go hyper fragile. I've been in every kind of draft. You want to be in one. The best ones are where it's balanced, right? So Mm -hmm. that you can kind of get a feel for it and then you can play the value and then you can plot your strategy. But I've ended up in the ones where, and that's why I hate sometimes like trying to force a strategy because what happens is as soon as you force it, it's the room that you're in that all this value starts falling, falling to you. And you're like, Holy crap. Mm -hmm. I wish I wasn't ZRRB in this stupid draft because now I would have like X, (laughs) Y, Z and all the value that's sitting there is all the receivers that I now don't need, you know? So, I mean, and it can go either way, but it's, it's interesting how those things sometimes work out, but I love what you're saying with flexibility. I think being able to, um, you know, shift gears based on what others are doing is really the key, you know, to anything in life and being successful, you've got to be willing to adapt. So I think that's good, good advice. Yeah. And to me, like the, the overarching theme of this whole drafting season has been wide receivers getting pushed up in ADP. And I know like some people have done awesome work on like, you know, what, what won these best ball tournaments last year and, you know, and kind of the data says you want to be loading up on wide receivers. Like, you know, after you get your one or two stud running back, then you're just kind of pounding wide receivers. But First of all, you know, that what won last year won't necessarily win this year, especially with the ADP landscape changing where, you know, you could get wide receiver 20 in round five last year, but this year, you know, wide receiver 20 is going early round four. So the whole landscape has changed. And yeah, I, I think you know, value drafting is still the way to go. Like I, I can't take, you know, Chase Claypool over Miles Sanders. You know, that's just like one example, but like if Sanders is dropping into the fifth round, like I'm not going to take a wide receiver in the fifth just because, you know, last year's data tells me I should when I can, you know, grab Miles Sanders there. I agree. I think those macro trends are very important, but there's a lot of context (laughs) that goes behind them. And, you know, I'm a sample of one, but I've won, you know, done really well. I'm sure you guys have too, like every different way. In 2018, Mm -hmm. you know, I finished second, right, in the FFPC's Football Guys Players Championship. And I started with three running backs. You know, they just so happened to be Le'Veon Bell, Todd Gurley, and Kareem Hunt. And so (laughs) basically I didn't even need receivers on that team. Like I destroyed everything. I lost because Zach Ertz didn't catch a ball. I think I've told you guys that before. But anyway, I'm not bitter, Zach Ertz. You got blonde hair now. I just wish you would have caught that pass, like worth 250000 um, You can blame it on Nick Foles, though. But then I've had, you know, seasons before that where going zero RB back when it really wasn't like a huge thing. But it's because I could start a draft back in the day. You could get Julio Jones and Demarius Thomas in like the third and fourth round when they were still, you know, like up and coming you know, and you could draft one anchor back and then take three or four receivers. And then because I felt really good about two backs, like from around seven and eight, and believe it or not, like one, I think at that time was like, if I remember correctly, like was Fred Jackson. My, my anchor running back was Jamal Charles though. Thank God. Like he was great, but there's just all these different ways that you can do it. And it, I think it's, you're hitting it really well. Both of you are, it comes down to every season's going to be a little bit different. And I, I'm a hundred percent in agreement that every draft is different. And so flexibility does just remain the key. Yeah. Back in the day, you could have gotten CD lamb in round four. You know, that's, that's not, that's not happening nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Like that. With, I know we're getting, it was like, people, man, mid second, like, God, I, I don't get it. <laughs> like I, it, I feel like you're leaving yourself no room. And I see these, 
folks continue to say, no, no, he's still not high enough. And I'm like, how? Like, how is he not high enough? Well, Amari Cooper could get hurt. Mike Evans could get hurt. And Chris Godwin could go off for 24, 25% of Tom Brady's targets. I mean, what's the difference? CD Lamp can get hurt. Anyone can get hurt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's, and I hate it because I want to own more CD Lamb. Like, that was a guy I was pounding the table for last year saying, no, do not draft Michael Gallup in the seventh. Instead, just draft Lamb in the eighth. Um, but now it's Lamb in the mid-second or, you know, at the 2-3 at the turn at best. And so I don't own very much. I like have to force it just to get like a few shares. So we don't like where CeeDee Lamb's going. We talked about some of the things that we did like from preseason week one. What are some things that you saw, Dwayne, from that first set of games that you don't like? Mm-hmm. Any guys that are... Or that you're at least wary of, if not moving down yet. Well, I think the zero RB drafters have to be a little concerned because, you know, their profile is, and I love the zero RB team. Like there's a lot of super smart guys. So this isn't meant as a slight, but I would be nervous because Travis Etienne was like a huge component of that because you want an athletic profile that could catch passes. Well, right out of the gate, we've got 75% of the rushing attempts going to James Robinson, hundred percent of the short down and distance snaps, 67% of long down and distance. And for those that don't know what that is, that means seventh or fourth down and over seven yards to go. So it's a very obvious passing situation. Teams are going to pass the ball like 97% of the time, unless they're just trying to, you know, you know, end a game in that situation. And so Etienne is not on the field. And that means that either A, they just don't trust him, you know, yet with that, with that role. Now we didn't get to see the two minute offense and you often won't in the preseason. So he could still win that role. But the thing that was the most haunting for me was Carlos Hyde also getting in. So 20% of the snaps with the first, these, when I quote these um, snap percentages and stuff, just so everybody knows, I do try to make it with is the best as I could tell going in and looking at it, like where the starters left. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's what all of these are referring to. So Hyde was 20% of the snaps, 27% of the routes and 25% of the third down snap. So right now we've got a three-way rotation and we could argue, well, Etienne will eventually take over. But, I mean, Robinson was really good last year. So it could just be a pure split all year and maybe Hyde eventually fades into oblivion, which, you know, we all hope, just kind of like we all hope Peyton Barber fades into oblivion. It's the same kind of thing. Um, but these coaches do weird stuff, man, especially early in the season. And you could be stuck, stuck waiting on this guy for eight or nine weeks. And I know you want to focus on the playoff weeks and all that. But personally, I want to make the playoffs. So, I mean, it makes it makes where he goes and drafts right now because um, often he's a fifth round pick. Um, and a lot of it is because of all of the zero RB drafting. And so I'm, I'm not really comfortable with that. I've gotten some exposure so far, but I don't think I'm going to be pulling the trigger on a whole lot more. And it's more. And it's mostly about ETN versus James Robinson here, but Carlos Hyde is somebody we need to keep in mind because it's not hard at all to draw the connecting line between him and an annoying role this season. I'm not saying Carlos Hyde's going to be a fantasy factor, but he's going to be a fantasy disruptor because he has history with the coach. He was ecstatic that they hired Urban Meyer. You can read his quotes about it. He said, as soon as they signed him, as soon as they Got Urban Meyer as the coach. Carlos Hyde said, I knew I was going to go play there. They signed him quickly. These coaches love their guys, whether it's assistant coaches or players that they had in college or players that worked for them in the pros. I mean, Carlos Hyde's going to be involved. James Robinson is clearly going to be heavily involved. It's a tough spot. I can't say that I'm totally out on Travis Etienne, but it's it's a worrisome spot, and I agree with being apprehensive on him at cost right now. This, this freaking Jack's coaching staff, man. I'm, I'm worried about the, the, the whole – like, there's so much talent here. Lawrence I don't know what to expect. I, yeah. It's like a wild card. I really don't know, like, what yeah, they're, they're I mean, do. 
they're still they're still giving Gardner Minshew most of the first team snaps in practice right now, which is insane to me. You know, we're three weeks away from the season. You know, Lawrence is going to be in there. They're, they're wasting snaps. I've gone back and forth on ETN all you know, since he was drafted by Jacksonville. Like I, I think he's the the back going in round five six that like has RB one upside if Jacksonville lets him be that. And he doesn't even he doesn't need two hundred fifty carries. Get him two hundred carries and then you know sixty seventy targets, which I think is what he should be getting. And you know you're probably talking about a top twelve running back, but I. I it, it seems unlikely that he's going to get that. And, yeah, I mean, if Hyde makes this a three-man committee, then you know, ETN's just dead, I think. Yeah, ETN's got to get either the two-minute offense role. He really needs a combination. He needs to be the passing down back period yeah. to, to have a shot at 70, um, especially if it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that James and Robinson's getting first and second down, you know, probably two out of every three drives, which is seems to be where this is headed. Um, so we'll have to see. Ike Azar on uh, Periscope or on Twitter says draft Marvin Jones. I, there are oh, so yeah. many players that you like want to like in Jacksonville, <laughs> but it's tough to trust what this coaching staff is going to do. I agree at this point. It's like, which Jaguar is going latest? I'll just take a little bit of him and we'll see where it goes. Yeah, I was going to say, at least, at, least, at least Jones is cheap, right? Like, you know, you can get him in the 12th round. So I'm, I'm fine with Chenault's that. Chenault's overpriced. Like, we can say that. I mean, it, people – really want him to be more than, and, and I like him as a player. Don't get me wrong. This is more of an ADP thing, um, but he's pretty much, he's going to only be on the field in 11 personnel based on everything I'm reading, based on what we saw this last week. And that's I'm with a- DJ Chark. That's with DJ Chark out. Um, yeah. You know, he was only out there for 73% of the passing plays in a route. Um, he did get 33% of the targets, but you know, that's on limited drives. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't even out there for all of the long down and distance snaps. Like that's telling 60. He was only out there for 67% of the time when they knew they had to pass like with the starters, he was only out there for 75% of the third downs. Chenault is not going to be on the field a ton. So, I mean, he's going to be hard pressed to get over 70% of the routes and his dot is really low. Um, he could potentially be more explosive than he was last year. He did some nice things, but his, his ADP is just too high. That's an eighth or a ninth round player not a sixth or a seventh rounder. So if you're in a home league, he may fall to a spot where you're going to be fine drafting him. But if you're playing in, you know, what we consider to be sharp rooms, he's going too early. How much, how much 11 do you expect Jacksonville to be in? Cause you know, they have probably the worst tight end room in the NFL. So I'd expect they'd be, you know, they, they again, this coaching staff should have them near the top of the league in 11. I'm not sure if they're going to yeah, like, think do, do you have Bevel's history on that? Or how I do think you, they'll think? be, well, I looked at Bevel and I did look at, um, you know, Urban Meyer as well. Mm-hmm. And so Urban Meyer is actually shown to be very flexible. If you go look back at his time in Ohio state, he had years where he was near the top um, of college ranks and running 11 personnel. He had years where he was near the top and using 12. So he's, he's been very adaptable. And I would agree with your point that receiver is really where they're stacked. So I think they're going to be in that probably 70 to 75% of the time, which is really high, but still, Chenault's too high at that price. That's even with that baked in, that's too high unless they run at warp speed, which we have seen some quotes this week about them wanting to be a faster offense. And so that's something I've toyed with in my upside range of projections over the last two days was just looking at Chenault and all these guys that if we really did project Jacksonville to, you know, run more plays. So I bumped them up by, uh, I want to say on my high end, I bumped them by like 4% and it did help some, but it's still, I just, I think, you know, drafting him, you know, aggressively in like the sixth round, like we're seeing in some of these big tournaments, I think is a bit pricey, you know, for Chenault. Yeah. And if they want to be a speedy, efficient offense, they better figure out who their quarterback's going to be pretty quickly and start getting him a lot more work. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't get that. What else do we not like from week one of the preseason? I got something I do like. We can do okay. another don't like though too. Let's we can talk about an offense that's actually really good. Um, so Clyde Edwards Alaire played 91% of the snaps over the first first two drives with the starting offensive line, handled 100 percent of the carries, he was in a route on 86% of the dropbacks, and he got the lone short down and distance snap. Um, I know that's a very small sample size, so don't at me. Um, Daryl Williams only saw one snap. If if Clyde Edwards Alaire gets that kind of work, now again. They only had two drives. Mahomes was only out there for the first, but he and Kelsey and Hill stayed out there with the starting offensive line. So it's clear they were working on the running game. But if he gets that kind of workload, like he's a first round, he's a first round back. Everybody's talking about Antonio Gibson, Clyde Edwards Alaire, you get later than him, and he's in an elite offense. Like Edwards Alaire, like I can't get enough of at the two, three turn. I feel like he's the guy that if we get another data point like this and it gets pumped up enough, like the days of getting him at the two, three turn are about to be over. And so if I'm drafting this weekend, um, which I will be, uh, if I'm drafting this week, which I will be, if I'm drafting tonight, which I will be, I will be trying to get as much as I can because I think it's about to pop on him. I do think, so the one thing I can't say for sure, um, McKinnon did come in and get the long down and distance work after Edwards Alaire left the game. They didn't have any long down and distance situations. Mm-hmm. Um, we also haven't seen the two minute offense yet. So you do have to put some caveats on it, but it's just a reminder that, I mean, Edwards Alaire could be an amazing value, you know, where you're getting him in this offense. And I mean, and he, he opened last season, you know, I think it was the first six games yeah. in a workhorse role. Then they signed Le'Veon Bell and everything changed. Um, well, and he got I, hurt too. People don't realize like he was playing hurt and he was on the injury report and he was coming off at the end of the week. But when you go back and you Google Edwards Alaire, right. And practice reports, like he had several weeks in there where he was dealing with different things and he was a rookie. I saw I saw today Andy Reid said their starters are going to play like close to the entire first half uh, in this second preseason game. So we should get a, a good idea of if that's really, you know, what CEH is going to be doing this season. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, that'll be one I'll be hyper, hyper tuned into. We had uh, Michael Anthony on Facebook ask about Jarek McKinnon. Um, are you at all interested in seeing beyond what you just mentioned about McKinnon, seeing what his role might be or is it? really just looking at him as a potential siphon of some, you know, receiving or long distance work from what we hope CEH will get. If they would play the whole half, like as much as we don't want anyone from that offense to get hurt, but it would be really helpful um, to us because what I would be looking, that means we would probably get to see the two minute offense. Mm -hmm. And that's what I would want to see because the two minute offense is really where you can stack on the points. Um, It's worth the most as far as from a PPR reception standpoint, it's worth the most of all types of snaps that a running back can take. And that's just for their receiving value. Not like if you add in the rushing two on first and second down, but just, I was just wanted to look at what's the receiving value of a snap to a running back. And the two minute offense is like where it spikes. So that's what we want. We want to see if Clyde Edwards, Alaire gets that two minute work and they liked him as a receiver out of college. Mm-hmm. But if McKinnon gets that, then at a minimum, we need to see Edwards, Alaire staying on the field for long down and distance which isn't worth as much. That's actually the least valuable um, receiving snap because quite often they're having to stay in to block. Um, and if they are running around, it's not past the sticks and the quarterback, if they're good, should really not be trying to take a check down. I mean, Alex Smith would love to do that, but most <laughs> quarterbacks don't. Um, so that that's the thing we can, we, if he gets the two minute offense, even if Daryl Williams takes the long down and distance, I don't care. Like that'll be enough and I'll be sold and I'll be taking Clyde Edwards and Lair in the middle of the second round, like all the time, if I just see that. Um, so, but McKinnon could have that. So if those two roles are not his, then he really 
needs to stay down around where he's going and you're going to deal with some spike weeks up and down um, from and throughout the season. But you're basically hoping that eventually he takes over one of those other roles at some point, you know, during 2021. If we don't see Edward Lair get that two minute type work, it might be not only worrisome for this year, but a signal that maybe he's due for long-term disappointing, I would think, because uh, coming into the league last year, that was his differentiator versus the rest of those top backs. Mm-hmm. I agree. It could be time to, to get worried if that doesn't happen. <laughs> so not time to worry yet, folks. We're waiting to see what happens in the next We're one. being positive, man. We're, We're talking about something that hasn't happened yet, just the worry if it does happen. Yeah. All right. Do, do you guys want to talk about another bad thing? I mean, I think pretty much everybody knows about Miles Gaskin, so I don't know if, I want, <laughs> how much we need how much we need to hit it. But I wanted to get your thoughts on Gibson. Oh, Antonio he, Gibson. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. was he was the big one for me. Yeah. So with Gibson, yeah, um, it wasn't good. Um, he handled fifty seven percent of the snaps when Ryan Fitzpatrick was in the game um, over the first two drives, but JD McKissick handled fifty percent of the passing snaps, including the long uh, the only long down and distance snap that they saw. The most disturbing thing was that Peyton Barber sniped the only short down and distance. So short down and distance is third or fourth down and less than and two yards or less to go. Um, and we saw his season start that way last year. It was this three-way committee, and McKissick was handling most of the passing work. Barber was coming in and eating up the stuff inside the five, as, as well as a lot of the carries, you know, the short down and distance work. And if that happens, it's kind of then what is Gibson? He's a first and second down back between the 20s. And we're drafting him in the middle of the freaking second round. Um, as much as I love him, and I know everybody wants to talk about upside and what he could be and how he could be Christian McCaffrey, but it's worrisome to me because this is exactly what they did last year. So again, if we're taking data points and we're piling them on one another, it's not like we're just you know people are like, oh, it's one preseason game, and I'm like, oh yeah, it's one preseason game and half of last season, you know. <laughs> so that worries me. Now down the stretch last year, and what had me so excited about. Gibson, because early in the offseason, I was off of him. I'm like, I'm not drafting him, which was wrong because I couldn't, that's when I actually could have afforded him. And then as I started to look at him more, I was like, you know, he really eliminated Peyton Barber down the roll, down the stretch last year, even though he had toe issues. And I was like, man, this guy could basically be Jonathan Taylor, you know, five, six, seven, eight. Well, it was a full round discount, you know, um, because if he's going to handle most of the rushing work, he doesn't have as good of an offensive line. He's not in, you know, I get it. His, it's not the same exact situation as Taylor and we're not trying to compare even the talent, but my thought was he could be in line for 260, 270 carries before he even catches any extra passes. Like that's a good enough baseline. But if Peyton Barber comes in and snipes 50 to 75 of those, now we're back down to 225 or 215 carries and he's only getting, you know, six, 7% of the targets. It's just not going to be enough to pass on the receivers, especially like if Calvin Ridley is sitting there and you're taking him. Heck, I would argue in a full point PPR um, and a half point PPR um, even like I'm probably not taking him over DK Metcalf. Um, I'm at the point where I'm more willing to make a bet on Clyde Edwards-Alaire than I am him. I'm taking Najee Harris over him. And again, all of the upside is true. But if I got to deal with this Peyton Barber thing, even for half the year, and there are other guys that I really like that are also young and talented and have their own kind of upside then why am I forcing it with one person? I just, I don't see the need to do it. Yeah. I mean, to me, like even among running backs, like with, with Gibson, you're, you're hoping he gets the role that Najee Harris and Joe Mixon already have. So like, like to me, t- taking Gibson over either of those guys just it doesn't make sense. Cause his upside is what those guys already are. 
You're just a boring usage guy, Jared. You don't see the big <laughs> picture. You don't understand talent. Well, Joe Mixon sucks. We all know that. <laughs> I, you know what's funny about Joe Mixon? Um, so I did some research on this. And um, why well, I say I did, um, like a super smart person at PFF, like way smarter than me. Um, but, and he's only 20. So if you guys <laughs> don't follow him on Twitter, but his name's Tez Seth, go check out um, his work. On PFF, it's freaking phenomenal. But he did this awesome thing where he took all of the backs and he looked at their explosive plays, but he normalized the data to basically take away things where like, so for example, explosive rushing plays go up in the second half of games and you get so explosive rushing plays are carries of 10 yards or more, but it's because you're facing less eight man boxes. So as the game goes on, right, and there's more throwing happening, it's natural. The defenses start to go into more looks to stop the pass. Well, then it makes it more advantageous to run. And so once you level the playing field out, so again, long down and distance would be another example, right? Third down and eight, and you run a draw play for, you know, 11 yards, even though you get the first down, like that's not as hard as, you know, taking, making a 10 yard rush, right? When it's third down and four, it's two very, very different situations in the way the defense is situationally going to handle you. And so once accounting for all those things, Joe, Mc, I put it into um, I put it into five different buckets and just to keep it simple for people graded it basically F D C A and B or B and A A and B. Wow. Um, <laughs> he graded out as a B, which was really good. Zeke was a D. Um, so he came out as far as explosiveness goes. Once you level the playing field, Joe Mixon was actually um, in the top eight, almost nearly, he was nearly in the top 80%. He just missed being over 80%, which would have made him an A over the last three seasons. That's that, that's the best thing I've heard all week, Dwayne. <laughs> I have, I, so yeah, I have, you get utilization I have and you could get a good running back. <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have way too much Joe Mixon. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, limit the exposure like we talked about, but man, if, if he gets to the middle, of the second round, especially in the back half of the second round, I can't pass on him. I can't either. Um, and I, it's, it's just funny, right? Joe Mixon, we all, everybody loved Joe Mixon last year as the end of the second, as the end of a first round pick beginning of the second until he, and he got hurt later in the preseason and that moved his ADP down, but that's where everybody had him. And I was off of him because of Geo and just knowing, you know, what had happened in the past and reading, you know, between the lines, all the quotes and everything and everybody, you know, pummels you for it. But now this year, Gio's gone, and you try to actually prop up the player. Like, and ever last year, you were a hater, and now you're trying to prop him up, and you're like, oh man, you're just this is like old news. And I'm like, this is the year. If you ever wanted Joe Mixon, like, now's your time. Like, this is your year. Yeah, it's what we've been waiting for based on what the coaches exactly. are saying. Looking ahead of the guys, the running backs that we were just talking about, Barry Adams, who's watching us on Facebook, wants us to make him feel better about Alvin Kamara at three. So, Dwayne, is Alvin Kamara the third running back off the board? I'm assuming PPR here. Yeah, for me, he's he's still he's the third in full and half. Once you get to standard, then I think you can make an argument, right? You move him down a couple of spots with some of the other guys. Here, here's my thought. I do worry about Taysom Hill, but at this point, I just I think about Sean Payton. I think about his ability to do this in the past with other guys like Darren Sproles. And how good we've seen, you know, Alvin Kamara be. I, I just, man, I don't see how he's not the focal point. You know, even with Taysom Hill as a starter, um, especially with Michael Thomas out for, you know, an extended period. And who knows what's going to happen with Michael Thomas? Like he and the team are not on good terms. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm not drafting Michael Thomas. Basically, um, like I don't, I don't even know if he'll play for the Saints this year. Um, so I, I just don't see a way that he doesn't end up 
with enough touches to be valuable. I think you do have to start to worry about his efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has that magic uh, formula. He gets receptions, you know. Um, I will say, like, if his receptions even came down, like, 3%, like, it would really hurt him. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that would drop him, you know, three or four spots. Like, that's how close a lot of those guys at the top are. Um, you mean a 3% target share? Yeah, yeah, sorry, 3% yeah. target share. If you dropped him by 3%, you know, he's a guy that usually gets, gets up around 20%, or at least that's, you know, his prorated, you know, target share is right around 20% for the plays he's playing or for the games he plays. Um, but if that came down to like 17 or 16, I mean, it would definitely hurt. And we saw that last year, his floor kind of evaporated several games, you know, um, well, and so did his upside, like, <laughs> to be honest, like everything evaporated. Um, I guess the positive is the last game he and Taysom Hill played together, you know, Hill did pepper him that game. Um, that's one data point. I don't know that you can say a lot. I- I'm really trusting Sean Payton. Mm-hmm to basically be like, what else am I going to do? Like, (laughs) I got to figure out ways to get Alvin Kamara, you know, in the game plan. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to trust Sean Payton. You have to trust Alvin Kamara. Uh, There's, we can't get, we we, we can't assume that we know anything from the stretch that we got of Taysom Hill with Alvin Kamara last year. He was also playing through a foot issue through the first few games of that span. So it's really tough to know to judge. Is Alvin Kamara the third player off the board for you in PPR, half PPR? He still is. Um, I have Aaron Jones graded in my top four, um, but mostly I'm trying to let Aaron Jones be a value to me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I have them right there together. I think Aaron Jones takes over the two minute offense. I think AJ Dillon handles uh, all of Jamal Williams's old role minus the two minute offense. I think he even takes over the long down and distance just based on what I'm reading and some of the past blocking drills and stuff that I've been you know looking at with them. Um, so I think, with Aaron Jones, like he would be the option if I wanted to pivot in a PPR, but I, I feel like I'm kind of, I don't want to force it because I mean, Kamara's been so good. It's like, why do I need to force it? So yeah, for me, he's, he's the three I've seen people just take Kelsey there. <laughs> you know, I guess you could always do that. My, my problem is typically George Kittle or Darren Waller make it back. And I love mm-hmm. Kelsey. But if I get to get one of the top three backs plus a top three tight end, I like that combination better than Kelsey and Clyde Edwards-Alaire. As much as I like Edwards-Alaire, I feel more certain about Waller plus, you know, Kamara. Like, that's that's mm-hmm. the way I look at it. Yeah, for me, uh, the, the numbers say Kamara is the, the number three back. You know, just looking at the his usage – and the Saints O-line is still very good, too. That's what sort of has me, you know, Sean Payton plus their O-line, I think, has me optimistic that that offense might be okay because, you know, man, outside of Camara, there's there's not much else there to get super excited about. Um, so so it's for me, the numbers say Camara. My, my gut, though, kind of says Zeke should be three. I, I just think he is still going to handle the majority of the, the carries and the majority of the, of the running back targets and that, you know, the Cowboys offense could be the best in the NFL. Yeah, I'm a little down on Zeke. Um, not too far. I still like him but some of the behind the stuff, you know, seen stuff that, you know, we get to look at, like he's really fallen off. Like, and you can see it on the field, obviously. And I, I mean, players do have bounce back years from these yeah. sorts of things. I went and looked at that data, but you know, more often than not, you know, it's a problem. I mean, he's over 1500, he's over 1500 carries. Um, if you had playoffs and you had, you know, penalty plays in, I mean, so he's already passed that mark. And so there's just enough there that I'm like, do I need Zeke? Because I, I could take one of the elite receivers. Um, I also feel 
kind of the same way about Derrick Henry. I like both of them, but I'm, I'm kind of torn. It's like in a full PPR, I might just take Devonte Adams right there. <laughs> you know, when I get, you know, to pick five or pick four and Zeke sitting there last night, I got Zeke at 10 and I got Barkley, you know, in the next round, I picked two, nice. which was awesome. Um, so I like him in that scenario, but I, I was pounding Zeke early and some of the data I've looked at is just enough. Cause everybody, there's so many good <laughs> options in the first round. It's like, yeah. it's just enough that I'm like, man, I don't want to be overexposed on Zeke. I want exposure, but I don't want to be like nuts on it. PFF number was, was he like trending down and then last year was like a continuation or was it just last yes. year? He was trending down and a continuation. Um, he, he had been a B as far as his, his um, explosiveness um, over expected. Then he dropped down to a C and then last year he dropped down to a D. He was almost an F last year. Now, you do have to remember he did play with an injury some. You had Andy Dalton gone. The entire offensive line was completely shot. He was he I think he was playing head games with himself, like with the fumbling and everything. So I think there's a lot of different factors. And like I never point to any one thing and I'm just like, oh my God, I'm just totally off this player. Like for me, it's just when there's a, a group of players that I like all of them very much, it's like mm-hmm. I have to like what are the tiebreakers? And for me, it's really the workload for Zeke. Um, is just enough to make, and I'm with you. I still think he gets the majority of the work. I think all the Tony Pollard truthers that think they're actually going to draft Tony Pollard and should take him in the ninth round because he gives them flex value. They're wrong. You're not ever going to want to start Tony Pollard unless Zeke's hurt. I'm just telling yep. you right now, it's not going to happen. Um, but I, I do worry about Zeke and injury um, and just deterioration. Getting back to Kamara versus Aaron Jones, Ike Azar on Twitter again says in an auction, would you rather pay up for Camara or save some money and buy Aaron Jones? I think I know what your answer is going to be. I already know what my answer is going to be. You're probably getting at least a decent sized discount by going to Aaron Jones. Absolutely. Aaron Jones is a great auction player. Joe Mixon is a great auction player. Like, I mean, they're great players period, but yes, absolutely. I'm taking the discount. That's what I love about tiers and auction leagues. <laughs> it makes things like really simple tiers and a redraft and a redraft snake. Like you still, you, you can only do so much with the position you're in, but like an auction, like, man, you, you could talk about maximizing strategy, like tiers are golden. Like when you're in auction format. Yeah. I was just going to say it, when you're talking about the difference between them here, if you're looking at uh, the first round of a draft, we might be talking about Camara going third and Jones going eighth in an auction. You could see Aaron Jones go for $15 less than Alvin Kamara. Yep. Totally. And then we talked about the Saints, so we've got one more question with a Saints wide receiver mixed in. And I'm not going to say the name of the poster. You can go to the Draft Sharks YouTube page if you want to see that. But in a one PPR league, who would you prefer as the last wide receiver on your roster? Some guys we've already talked about here. Elijah Moore, Rondale Moore, Marquez Callaway, or Amon Ross St. Brown. Can I go ahead and toss Amon Ross St. Brown out of this question, please? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he – deserves to be in the, I like him, but I don't think he deserves to be in this conversation. Um, before the quad injury, it would have easily been Elijah Moore. And I was, it's, if they're equal and you're getting him with the last pick of your draft, I would still say it's Elijah Moore. Um, I think he and Corey Davis will be the two most targeted receivers on that team. Um, I'm not completely down on Jamison Crowder. I think he could get utilized as well. Um, but then I would say Rondell Moore would be next. And I mean, Callaway's right there too. Like, I mean, he was on the field for 100% of the snaps with the starters. I mean, Traquan didn't play. Um, three receptions, 61 yards. 
Um, but for me, I'm still probably going Elijah Moore. But I mean, it's really close. Like I have all the, I have all three of those guys for what it's worth, like separated by like ten spots. They're all really close together. Yeah, I mean, for for me, it'd be the two Moors, and I do prefer Elijah. Um, I'm I'm tapping the brakes on Calais. Like I know he's been having a good camp. He did look good in that preseason game, but like you said, Dwayne uh, Traquan Smith has been out. I know he he's gonna be back. He'll be out there for week one. It sounds like, and Michael Thomas likely is gonna be back at some point too. But you know, it's really gonna hurt. Calibay's value. So, you know, talk, talking season-long value, I think Elijah Moore and Rondell Moore are pretty easily the two best bets there. Elijah Moore is my easy number one here because unlike Rondell Moore, I see the path that he could have to ultimate upside. He could lead that team in targets. I'm not, I don't need him. I'm not betting that he's going to do so by drafting him where he goes, but he's the one guy here who could. Marcus Callaway for me is what I think that Rondale Moore fans want him to be Marquez Calloway is probably going to open that season as at least one of the top two wideouts on that team, maybe the number one guy in targets. And then Michael Thomas, you know, not only the, the thing with the team, which they say it's getting worked through, but his ankle was never all the way back last year, obviously. I mean, that's why he needed surgery afterward. Maybe Michael Thomas's ankle is just never quite right this year. So maybe Calloway comes out. He is the lead target right away and he stays a top two target all season. So I like the upside on him more than I like Rondale Moore. And I'm not saying I would take eight Marquez Callaways versus two Rondale Moores if I'm picking that 10 times, but it's, it's like probably six, four Callaway for me versus Rondale Moore. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I don't, I, I, I think you can make an argument for any of those guys, but I do think Elijah is my, to y'all's point, like they're close, but he's the clear, um, he's the clear one. And if we didn't have the quad thing, like it would be an even easier answer. Yes, I agree with that. I think we can all agree on Elijah Moore, which is which is one thing that everybody seems to be agreeing on this offseason, just a matter of how early you have to take him. So with that, he is a fantasy analyst at Pro Football Focus. He is half of the FF Hustle podcast team, and he's a longtime friend of Draft Sharks. We will certainly keep him on the Rolodex and keep him in our circles here. Follow him on Twitter at Dwayne McFarland. Dwayne, thanks very much for joining us today. No, I appreciate you guys. Absolutely. That'll do it for this episode of the podcast. Head over to DraftSharks.com now. You can check out our full rankings, the just-posted Perfect Draft series, that at the site this week, and our shiny new Draft War Room. You become a DS Insider, get access to all that stuff. For Dwayne McFarlane, Jared Smola, and the rest of the Draft Sharks crew, I'm Matt Schaap saying thanks so much for swimming with us. 